Colossians chapter 3 tonight is where we're at. And let's go ahead and bow our heads before we get into the outline and ask God to help us. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, that's the only reason that we can come to you is because of what Jesus has done and given us access, told us that we can talk to you, told us that you desire to hear from us, and that, Lord, your eyes are upon the righteous and your ears are open unto their prayers. So, Father, we're asking tonight that you'd guide us, help us. There is a lot of very practical stuff in this chapter that would help a lot of people. Lord, so I pray you'd minister to our hearts as we go through these things now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Colossians chapter 3. I have two different outlines that um, I'll let you choose from. If I had to give the chapter a title, I would just say the new life in Christ, I think would be a fair description. So here's three parts, but listen to the three parts. Out with the old, in with the new, with whatsoever you do. Hey, I worked that out pretty nice, I thought. Out with the old, verses 1 to 9. In with, the, in with the new, verses 10 to 16, with whatsoever you do, verses 17 to 25. All right, <clears throat> if that's too fancy for you, I have a second option. This one's a lot, more, lot less creative. Two parts, the new life inwardly, verses 1 to 15, and then the new life outwardly, verses uh, 16, I'm sorry, I left a verse out there. Uh, verses 16 to 25. Yeah, I have 17 in my notes. Uh, verses 16 to 25. Now, I, I understand that in the first half of the chapter, we do see some things that will affect the outward life. And in the second half of the chapter, we see things that will speak to the inward uh, life as well. So there is some overlap there, but I think the primary focus in the first half is on the inward condition and then second half, the outward condition. But I believe you'll see that as we go. All right, so verses 1 to 9, we're dealing with out with the old. And let's start in verse 1 and take a look at this. It says here, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Remember in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, Physically, right, you're sitting in your living room, I'm sitting in my office, or maybe you're somewhere, you know, at a desk somewhere. We're, we're seated down here on earth. But, and, and I want to say, it's not a matter of one's literal, the other one is just metaphorical. That's not the case. Both things are literally true. I am physically here on the earth. Spiritually, I am really, I am literally seated in heaven. It is a spiritual reality. But Paul is pointing to what we've been talking about quite a bit, This, especially in the book of Romans, this applied gospel. We are dead and buried. There's a part of us dead and buried that has been <clears throat> crucified with Christ, and then our spirit has been joined to Him and resurrected from the deadness of sin. So we are risen with Christ, and because that's the case, at the end of chapter 2, you can remember that Paul was pointing out some people were emphasizing worldly philosophies. They were emphasizing the commandments and doctrines of men. Touch not, taste not, handle not. All those things were to perish with the using. He said these are earthly, temporary things. As Christians, we seek those things which are above. And I'm going to show you some examples of what, what that would entail. 
We seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Now, the, the Greek word behind affection is phroneo, and I can't remember where I mentioned that word recently. It might have been in the men's meeting, now that I think about it. But nevertheless, this word affection, it, it, uh, this is a, a perfectly fine translation. I don't think you have any struggles understanding what that word is. We are often affectionate, right, when, we are, when we're very interested in something. But that's the other, that's the other uh, possible translation. The other interpretation of it is to be interested in something. This verse does not mean you cannot have an interest in something going on down here in the world. You might have hobbies. You just saw I have a beautiful grandbaby. I'm very interested and affectionate towards her. Um, but when it comes to our priorities, right, I am not going to be caught up and entangled with the affairs of this life. I don't want anything earthly to hinder my walk with Christ. And when there comes a choice between the things on earth or the things that would affect heaven, spiritual realities, I have to then choose, right? You can't have two masters. I have to choose which one is going to hold sway over my heart. And if, if a person is following worldly philosophies, if they're following a bunch of man-made rules, then they're dealing with something that originated down here on the earth. And, and the affections, they're going to be entangled with these worldly commandments or affairs. Let me show you a couple verses in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and let's look at verse number 10 to 12. And there are lots of places in the New Testament, I believe, that would uh, well illustrate the truth of Colossians 3.2. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, 11, and 12, I think does a good job of it. In verse 10 it says, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now remember, Paul's writing to Timothy and he's talking about, he's, he's warning Timothy and Timothy's going to warn the church that he pastors if, if they're not careful. They can get their affections set on earthly riches, and they can err from the faith. So these are believers. These are people that are, are professing Christians and trying to live the right life. And sometimes the things of this earth can draw our attention, our interest, and all of a sudden we become more interested in these temporary things than we do the eternal. Uh, verse 11, But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and follow after. Now here comes the things that are above. Follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. All of those things originate from God. Yeah? It's not an, a man-made commandment. It's not a man-made interest. Those are, those are things that originated from the eternal, from God Himself. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. You will have to fight your flesh. The, the things that you're interested in, the lust of the flesh. The Bible actually says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that the lust of the flesh, it wars against the soul. It does. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. 
All right, to come back to Colossians 3 and verse 2. So watch out for the worldly things that can draw your attention and grab a hold of you and, and sink you into many sorrows. Rather, follow after those godly things. In, in verse 3, Colossians 3, 3, Paul says, For ye are dead. Now we looked at this verse the other day as we were going through Romans. I gave this to you as a cross-reference. Obviously, we're not talking about a physical situation. It doesn't mean that it's not a real thing. It is really true. It is, it is just really true in the spiritual realm. For ye are dead. Part of you, right? that old nature, dead. In the eyes of God. That's how God considers it. And your life is hid with Christ in God. Now, isn't that a strange statement? You're dead, but you have life. Your life is hid with Christ in God. So you're dead but alive. Uh, you'll find, we call these the ironies of Christianity. You're dead but alive. Uh, if you want to go up, you go down, right? If you want to be exalted, you humble yourself. It, it's opposite. If you want to gain everything, you have to lose everything. You have to forsake it all to follow Him. So these are some, some ironies that you'll often come across throughout the Scripture. I love... This verse at the end, your life is hid with Christ in God. How saved are we, right? How saved are we? Your life is hid with Christ in God. So when I got saved, the Holy Spirit put me in Christ, and Christ is in God. So, man, that is as, bad, that, that is as safe as safe can be. Thieves cannot break through and steal. Nothing can corrupt in there. If the devil wanted to grab my soul, he'd have to get into Christ and then get into God as well. That's, man, that is a safe place to be. When we talk about eternal security, th this is the premise for such a teaching, right? Eternal security is not based on how we live. It's based on our condition in Christ, our standing. And this is obviously a statement about our standing. Verse 4, he says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. This works well with 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So when Jesus appears on the day of our gathering together, that's the biblical term. We often use the term rapture. On that day, right, when He appears, we appear with Him in glory. Uh, so we meet Him in the clouds, and then obviously we're ushered straight into heaven. And from that point, we never leave the Lord's presence. Now, the Lord's presence moves, moves about, right? We're going to be up in heaven for a short while, come back down to the earth for a thousand years, and then we relocate to, the, uh, to New Jerusalem. But we are in, him, uh, in His presence and His glory from that point forward. Notice also in verse 4, Christ who is our life. Christ is not a big part of our life, right? Our life is not about Christ. Our life is Christ. This is how Paul worded it in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. You might remember Paul said, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I think if you wanted to explain what we mean when we, when we say, Christ is my life, I think Galatians 2 verse 20 does the best job of breaking that down. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. 
and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I march to the beat of his drum. I let Christ do the living in me. I gave him my life, if I can say it that way. I lost my life. I, I said, I don't that old man, crucify him, dead, buried, get him out of the way. Lord, I do not have life in and of myself. That that life that God intended me to have, that abundant life. Right? Jesus said, The thief comes not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I am come that you might have life, and that you might have it more abundantly. So Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life. What does that indicate? You don't have life. So this physical, mortal life that we think of when we, t when we use the word life, that's not all there is to life. That's not the true life. Jesus came to give us what Adam lost, that perfect fellowship with God. We get that in the person of Jesus Christ. So Christ who is our life. So I let Him do the living through me. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. Could be any day. Amen. Could be any day. Could be tomorrow. The, the way the world is shaping up, you know, I, a lot of people have been reacting to some of the videos that we've posted about the mark of the beast and how this virus and vaccines and how it might play into that. You know what I think is going on? I think the world is getting ready to accept what the Antichrist will one day do. I, I, I don't... Now, guys, listen, I might be wrong. This might be it. We might be right knocking on the door, you know, of, of the tribulation time. We might be, you know, looking at, at the end times culminating, everything coming to, to, to fruition here. Maybe, maybe this is it. But I think... Spiritually, the world is getting ready. Right? I think this is like a trial run for what the Antichrist will do one day. Locking down the world, taking away freedoms, scaring people into submission a world to a worldwide, you know, a new world order. Anyway, I don't want to get too far off topic, but when I think about Christ appearing, I must admit, the way the things are shaping up, getting excited about that. Verse 5, verse 5. Mortify, therefore... So because of this doctrinal truth, because of this spiritual reality, you're dead, Christ is in you, you are in God, Jesus is coming. Because of that, mortify therefore. Remember, mortify means make dead. We would say crucify, right? This is another way of saying it. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Now, mortify means make dead. But Paul said in verse 3, ye are dead. Do you see how you, you have to understand these two statements as one is a statement of standing, ye are dead. The other speaks to your state or your condition, your temporary condition. So because the spiritual reality is the old man is dead, I need to practically and daily apply that to how I live. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. This is obviously not the full list. This is not the full range of what your flesh uh, has potential of doing. But uh, let me at least try to clue you in a little bit on these terms in case you're not familiar with them. Fornication, sexual immorality. By the way, all of these terms overlap 
a little bit. Uh, and, and most of them are very general. There's a lot of things that would fit underneath each one of these categories. But fornication is sexual immorality. We generally use the term when sex happens outside of, of marriage. Uncleanness, it, that can refer to any impurity, moral uncleanness, it could be physical uncleanness. Uh, it's a very broad category. You'll see that word used for a number of different sins in the Bible. Inordinate affection. This is when you have an inclination or an interest, right? That word affection, an interest or an appetite for something that is not natural, inordinate. Un in it's not ordinary. It's unnatural. Uh, immediately what springs to mind is Romans chapter 1, where it says they've left the natural use of the woman or of the man. Uh, things like that, bestiality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you find the word effeminate. You find that's a man who is trying to act like a woman. That's not natural. So that's an inordinate affection. Evil concupiscence. This is concupiscence. We met that word in Romans chapter 7. It's a fancy word for lust. However, the way it's used often in the Bible and the way it was used in, in biblical times, it generally referred to something of uh, sexual in nature. But it can be a desire for any perverted thing. Uh, and then lastly, covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, I like how Paul links this covetousness. The, the word covet simply means to desire. And you can actually covet something good. In 1 Corinthians 12, you're commanded to covet earnestly the best gifts, referring to spiritual gifts. So by itself, having a desire isn't necessarily wrong. What are you desiring, and is it more important than God? So covetousness does, it, it can, and it does often equate with idolatry because we allow that thing or even that person to become our master rather than being in submission to God. And this goes right back to what Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You'll love the one, hate the other. So when you start to have that strong desire and your affection is set on it for that thing or that other person, then it often takes the place of God. It becomes an idol. Right, verse 6, he says, For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Now that phrase children of disobedience. I understand that even a Christian can disobey, right? And some of God's children are disobedient. But the way that Paul uses this, this phrase, the children of disobedience, it's in distinction to the children of obedience. So there's two, two groups being addressed. There are the unsaved people, children of disobedience, and then there are the saved people. Look at verse 7. In the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. So notice how he points to the ye, yalla. He says, you guys used to be in that condition. You're not, that, you're not in that group anymore. Uh, come back to Ephesians chapter 2. Let me show you how he uses it here. <clears throat> this will, I believe, um, help emphasize this point. Ephesians 2 verse 1. Ephesians 2 verse 1. He says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, <clears throat> sorry, the spirit that now worketh in the children, <clears throat> I'm so sorry, in the children of disobedience. 
forgive me. <clears throat> All right, let's try that again. Uh, notice in verse 2, where in time past, before you got saved, you walked according to the course of this world, to the prince of power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So he's referring to, he says, you guys used to be like them. You used to do this. And that spirit, that unclean spirit, is still working in lost people even now. Verse 3, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now this gives me an opportunity just to quickly say, you'll often find the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians overlapping. The two books are great commentaries, the one on the other, and this is a good example of it. Now back to Colossians 3, verse 5 and 6. What you have is Paul saying, crucify the flesh, don't let, don't, don't entertain these desires of the flesh. Make sure you don't give in to them because, guys, it's, it's, these are the reasons. It's these things that God would send somebody to hell, that the wrath of God would come down on the children of disobedience. God has saved you from that penalty, and you're no longer abiding under the wrath of God. So why would you want to go back and do those things? It, it's a slap in his face. It shows that you don't appreciate what he saved you from. Furthermore, those people that are still doing those things, if they see a Christian, a professing Christian, do that, that lost person looks at it and says, well, they say they're going to heaven. They say they're a follower of Christ. Look what they're doing. And then we have a number of people today that won't receive Jesus Christ because of hypocrites in the church. Now, I don't think that's a very good reason to reject Christ. It's not a good reason at all, but we can understand why they would have pause, right? Why, why, they, would, why they would stop and think and go, it didn't help that person, so why should I think it would help me? Uh, this is exactly the point Paul was making in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. Uh, I, maybe you can just jot that down and look at it as a, as a cross-reference. I'm going to ask you to come to 1 Corinthians 15. I'd like to show you verse 34. Again, same point that Paul makes with the Corinthians, but look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 34. By the way, that's the attendance code for tonight, 1 Corinthians 15, 34. But here, Paul very succinctly puts it, uh, puts it to him. He says in verse 34, Awake to righteousness and sin not. The Corinthians, you know, they were not crucifying the flesh. They had given in. You can see in verse 33, they've been hanging out with the wrong crowd, evil communications, corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not. Why? For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Guys, wake up and start living right. There are some people that don't know God and you are not helping. You're offering a very confusing picture of what God and Christ and Christianity is all about. All right, come back to Colossians 3, verse 6. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. Now, lived in them, right? Remember this verse from Galatians 5, verse 25? If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Again, we're, I'm going to go back to standing and state. 
Yes? If we live in the Spirit, standing, I get my life because the Holy Spirit dwells within. Let us also walk. Now let us apply it. Let us, it's because of what's true inwardly, let it affect me outwardly. Uh, we looked at it recently, or, or Sunday, in Romans 8. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. That is a, a statement about your standing. You're in the flesh. You haven't experienced that spiritual circumcision. So Paul's referring to that in verse 7. In the which ye also walked sometime. You lived outwardly in this wicked behavior. Why? When ye lived in them, you, you, were, you were stuck to this sinful nature. You, you hadn't had that spiritual circumcision, so you were in that, that situation. Verse 8, But now ye also put off all these. So he's going to speak uh, uh, to, to their state, to their condition. Put off all these. You know, forgive me, I'm, I'm just, I want to I compare the scriptures here. Look at Colossians 2, verse 11. Colossians 2, 11. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. Now, do you see, that's a statement about your standing. The body of the sins of the flesh has already been removed. It's been put off. That is a spiritual reality. But now Colossians 3, 8. But now ye also put off all these. Well, I thought I already put it off. In Christ, right, in the spiritual realm, it's taken care of. But now I have to apply it to my everyday life. So Colossians 3, 8, But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Right there in the context. He tells me, now put off, put these things off, because you've put them off. If you don't see the difference between standing and state, it looks like Paul is, is speaking nonsense here. But uh, I believe you're, you're, you're familiar now with how he's referring to these things. Let me quickly just go through the list here. Anger, wrath, these things are obviously um, very similar to each other. Having a bad temper, getting emotionally, verbally, or physically aggressive. Uh, so I think anger and wrath would cover all of that. Malice. This is intentionally hurting people, not just physically, but even hurting their feelings, right? If you intentionally go out of your way to do it, that's malice. Blasphemy. Saying things that are untrue about other people or other situations on purpose just to make them look bad. That's blasphemy. And then filthy communications out of your mouth. Uh, again, that's a, a broad, uh, that can be a, a broad uh, category, lots of things under that. Cussing will fall into this, especially, uh, I mean, filthy communication. Every culture has different ways that they can express themselves uh, in, in lewd ways, and a Christian has no business using such language. Cuss words, sexual innuendos, dirty jokes, all of that stuff, it should be far away from your mouth. Verse 9, lie not one to another. Now, it's, again, it's not as if this is the entire list and this is all the flesh can do, but we get the idea. Those old deeds should be gone. And Paul takes time to point out that lying should be removed. I, I don't think we appreciate just how devastating lies can be in any relationship. In any relationship. Let me use something that I think we can mutually agree on, all of us, right? 
the government lies. Now that is a general statement. I get it. And I think that's true the world over. But it's very difficult to trust any politician when they speak because the society, pub, the public has lost faith in politicians because we've caught them in so many lies over the years. Well, now that same principle applies in your home, husbands and wives, parents and children, right? You catch somebody in a lie, it, it breaks down relationships and it takes time to build that trust back up. It has no place in the Christian, it has no place in anybody's mouth, but Christians, we should know better. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Verse 10, another statement about your standing, and have put on the new man. See, now that's a doctrinal reality. That is, that new man is already there. But you're going to see in just a couple of verses, verse 12, put on therefore. Well, now wait a minute. Is it on or is it not? Yes and no. Uh, standing it is, state, we have to do it every day. Verse 10, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Let me have you turn to Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, verse number 23 and 24, it's the best comment that you're going to find for uh, verse 10. Ephesians 4 and verse 23 and 24. Very similar context. You, well, can we start at verse 22? Sorry. It says that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now, in Colossians 3.10, it says the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So when you compare that with Ephesians 4.24, it is the new man which is after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. In both verses, what you're dealing with is this. That new man is a combination of your spirit and the Lord that has been joined together. And I, because of that spiritual union within me, Christ is now indwelling me. And the Holy Spirit living inside is going to change me more and more to be like Christ. So Colossians 3.10, it's renewed in knowledge after the image of Christ. The more I get to know God, the more I learn about Christ, the more I can become like Him. This is why we constantly talk about taking your personal relationship with God deeper. You cannot be satisfied with what you knew about God 5, 10, 20 years ago. You need to continuously be learning and growing and be involved with God, right? In the Bible, in prayer, in various activities, outreach, whatever it takes to get to know God better. You, you should be going through the gospel stories, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John consistently. You should be spending time in the Bible learning the nature of God. In our class, in, in our theology class, it's a, and Garrett did a great job last year of teaching that, you get to know all these various attributes. And when you learn about the biblical God, it helps you to compare Him to you and you can see where you're lacking. And then you can be renewed and become conformed to His image. 
Take your Bible, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. I want you to see this, this thing about being renewed. Christ lives within. I've put off the old man, I've put on the new, but daily I have to apply that. You'll see it clearly here. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, so you're getting older, you're dying, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Now obviously it doesn't mean you need to get saved every day, but every day I have to deny myself, take up that cross and decide today I'm going to do it His way, not mine. Alright, so back in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, "...have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that created him, where there is neither..." Greek nor Jew. So when you get in Christ, it, He does not conform people to Greek culture, the Hellenized people. He does not conform people to Jewish culture. In Christ, you don't have that distinction doesn't matter. It doesn't exist. Circumcision or uncircumcision is basically another way of saying what He's just said. But circumcision, uncircumcision, these would be people that do more than just bear the title of, yes, I was born into such and such family, but they actually follow the tenets of their culture. They, they make a big deal of those things. So that would be the small dis distinction. Circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian. This is an uncivilized person. So in Paul's day, you had Greeks. They were the Hellenized, the civilized Gentile. Then you had the Jew, obviously, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then you had circumcision. These are people that follow the letter of the law, make a big deal of that uncircumcision, they followed the culture, whatever, wherever they're from, make a big deal of that. Barbarian, uncivilized. Now, in 1 Corinthians 14, the word is used for a person, uh, if you don't know the language that they speak, right? And in South Africa, I find this situation often. Somebody's saying something, I don't understand it. In that situation, I'm a barbarian to him, he's a barbarian to me, because we don't understand each other. Uh, the way it, it's also right, it's also used to indicate a person with no manners, no culture, barbarian. And then Scythian is the next word. Scythian is a savage warrior, right? He, he is a, a nomadic warrior. Uh, a Scythian was somebody from the southern part of, I don't know why the Sudan is in my head, that's not right. What's that place? Russia, Siberia, Siberia. Uh, Southern Siberia, the, the Scythians were savage warriors that, that moved about in that area. And even to this day, uh, our good friend, him and his wife that are now living over there, uh, they actually showed me a sign where that word Sith or Scythian, I, I think it was, appeared in, in that language on one of the buildings. Uh, so a lot of people look at this. This is why some people think Colossians is an end-time epistle because it actually makes reference to, to Russia in there. Uh, and a Scythian is, it is slightly connected to that. But whatever the case is, when you get saved, the Holy Spirit, as He begins to work in you, He's not trying to conform you to a particular culture, right? Or a particular man-made system, not at all. He's trying to become their masters. Right? 1 Corinthians 7, Paul said, if you're saved as a slave, 
don't worry, that's not going to affect your spiritual condition of Christ. So there was, there was that irony once again. But salvation doesn't make slaves free, right, in the secular, nor does it make free men slaves. In the, he didn't come to change that secular situation. Uh, what he did is he came so that men can become more like Christ. So at the end of verse 11, but Christ is all and in all. It doesn't matter which culture you're dealing with, if they have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, it's the same Jesus dwelling within them. There, there is not a Greek Jesus and a Jewish Jesus and a, and a barbarian version of Jesus. There's just one Jesus, and He is all. He's all that matters. Amen. Verse 12, put on therefore as the elect of God. Now that term elect, Garrett is going to take you through this a little bit more in Ephesians chapter 1. But the word elect simply means chosen, right? And I know that that word gets abused. It's the eitferkisen in Afrikaans, uh, chosen out. But the elect are people that have been chosen by God, but not unconditionally chosen. Now, I'm not going to walk you through how all of that works tonight, but let me simply put it like this. When you willingly receive Christ, when you choose to receive Christ, then God chooses you and you become one of the elect. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Right? So that, that's your standing, holy and beloved. The Bible says in Ephesians 1.6, you have been accepted in the beloved. Holy and beloved, bowels of mercies. So various virtues are what we're going to see now that should exist in the Christian life. This is what we should now put on or dress ourselves with. Uh, mercies, this is dealing mild, mildly with people, even though they don't deserve it. Uh, kindness, going out of your way to help people and be a blessing. Humbleness of mind, humility, not worried about reputation. Meekness, to deal patiently and gently with people, even when they're provoking you. Long-suffering, putting up with stuff. Boy, you need a lot of that in life, right? In life. Verse 13, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. Putting up with each other. Guys, we're all going to make mistakes. We're going to say things that in the moment, right? In the heat of the moment, the flesh got the best of us. We are going to falter. Please, please don't write somebody off because they've made a few mistakes and hurt you. Be ready to forgive. Based on what? Based on them? Because they deserve it? No, no. They, they probably deserve a lekarpox law. They deserve to be chewed out and rejected. But, verse 13, if any man have a quarrel against any. So you got a real beef with them, we would say. You got a legitimate gripe. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Our standard, right, for forgiveness, the reason that we forgive is not because that person deserves it. It's because Christ forgave us. He's put up with you. He's put up with me. He patiently and gently deals with us. And amen, He has dealt gently. You talk about long-suffering. He's put up with us for a long time. And then immediately when we go to Him with a, with a contrite spirit and a broken heart, say, God, I'm sorry, ready to forgive. It's done. That is how we should treat each other. 
verse 14, and above all these things, put on charity. So above all these, you need love, charity, which is the bond of perfectness. That is what's going to, to the bond, it's going to hold everything together. It's going to keep all of these other virtues present in your life. If you don't have love, you might have a little mercy here and a little kindness. It might show up every now and then, but it won't be consistent. It won't, it, it, you won't be complete. Now, the reason charity is the highest thing on the list, right? 1 Corinthians 13, that great charity chapter, you have faith, hope, charity, but the greatest of these is charity because when you love someone, you are, you are concerned about helping that other person. That's what love is, you before me. So if, if I don't have love, I look at the situation and think, you did me wrong, you deserve to be rejected. And as long as everybody knows that I was right and you were wrong, and we leave it there. But if you love that person, even though they messed up and hurt you, you are concerned about helping them get back on their feet and get their life right and move on from there. So love, obviously, incredibly important. Verse 15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which... Also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. All right, three, three levels to this verse. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. This, I have no other way of saying it, but it's a feeling, right? Feelings aren't bad if they're based on facts, right? The right facts will give you the right feelings. So feelings, absolutely, very important. It, it, it's not what we, we don't determine truth because we feel good. Right? But if something is true, it should make you feel right. It, it should lead to the right feeling. When you are living a life that is pleasing to God, you do experience a peace in your heart, and it rules in your heart. Whenever God says, go this way, and you are going this way, and things get all crossed up and confusing and chaos and that peace departs because something is just not lining up correctly. You want to get in line with God and things start clicking and moving right and everything is done decently and in order the way, you know, according to God's will and you know God's happy with it. And when you know He's happy with it, oh man, even though everybody around you may not appreciate it, may not approve of it, God's happy with it. Right? When, when God speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Man. What a wonderful day it is when God whispers in your heart and says, Child of mine, I'm happy with you. I'm happy with you. It can really get you through some tough spots. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. you got a big decision to make. Am I going to move somewhere? Am I going to take this other job? Am I, am I going to marry this person? Uh, Life-changing, life-altering decisions. Wait for the peace of God to rule in your heart. Right? If you are making that decision and then there's something nagging inside going, oh man, don't do that. That might be the Holy Spirit grieving, saying, ooh, ooh, that. It may not even be a bad thing that you want to do. It just may not line up perfectly with what God wants. And be mindful of that. Be mindful of that. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. To the which also, so now he's going to make an additional point also about peace, to the which also ye are called in one body. So you need the peace of God in your heart personally. So this is a peace between you and God. Or let's say peace from God that's existing in your heart. 
but now peace also needs to exist between a brother and a brother. All right, so this relationship within the church, it needs to, we need to live in peace with each other. That's only going to be possible if you put on the virtues mentioned in verse 12 and 13 and 14 with charity, then we can all dwell in this peace or reside in this peace. And then at the end of the verse, and be ye thankful. That is a, you know, it's a very small, brief statement. Try to apply that tomorrow, even for the rest of the day. You know, I got a gift. Uh, I believe it was Christmas time. Somebody gave me a gift. It was a, a book on gratefulness. And every day this year, I've had to write, at the end of the day, right before I, I go to sleep, I write down three things that I'm thankful for. You know, that really has helped me tremendously. As I drift off to sleep, I'm now thinking about what, what went right that day. Even though maybe there was a lot of other bad things that happened, be thankful. If you would apply that, a lot of the frustration and bitterness, right, it comes from us looking for the problems. We, we refuse to look for the brighter side. Even in our darkest hour, we can look for something to be thankful for. Uh, yeah, I don't want to preach on thankfulness now, but it really, it'll help you avoid a lot of complaining, a lot of murmuring. It'll help you avoid that bad attitude. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Oh, there's a lot in that first phrase there. The word of Christ, we're dealing with you can narrow this down to the teachings of Jesus Christ, but I believe the way Paul uses it here, it's a reference to the scriptures just in general. Uh, it's certainly true of, of the entire Word of God. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you. To dwell, uh, that's more than just a passing thought, right? A lot of people talk about the Bible as if it's the topic of the day. It's like a news headline. It's the big thing to discuss, and once it's you know, out of fashion or you know, that, that fade, uh, that uh, phase, you know, just it fades away. People are no longer interested in it, and it's, it's gone. They didn't hide it in their heart. It should dwell in you, right? It shouldn't be just the popular thing to talk about. Let the Word sink deep. Thy Word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. So to dwell, that, that hints at permanence. It's a permanent situation. It should dwell in you richly. There should be a lot of it in there. A lot of it, richly. How much money do you have to have to be rich? How much would you need to be rich? How many Bible verses do you need to have dwelling in your heart to be rich? If you have two, right? If you have two rand, are you rich? Two rands? If you have five rands, are you rich? Probably not. Now, I'm not talking about, please don't, if you, have a, if you struggle with memory and you can't quote verses, you know, one after another, please don't worry about that. But the Word of Christ is dwelling in your heart. You know it is whenever somebody else starts talking about the Bible and you may not know exactly where it's at or you can't quote it verbatim, word for word, but you know, hey, that guy's talking about the Bible. I recognize that. Somebody starts teaching something and you say, yeah, I, that doesn't line up with Scripture. You may not be able to immediately turn to each verse to prove it wrong, but you have the Word of God in you. You know, wait a minute, that's, that's not right. There should be enough of it in there to protect you from that stuff. 
and to guide you. Now, the third thing, in all wisdom. You need to have a lot of the Word of God permanently in you, but you need to use it properly. There are a lot of people that have a lot of verses memorized and completely abuse it, use it for the wrong stuff, and then they're not fulfilling this verse. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And then he moves into singing. I find this interesting. In one verse, in one sentence, we go from scriptures to singing, uh, which shows me there should be a connection. Our music, our singing should be scriptural, right? I'm not saying that every word of every song has to be a Bible verse, but it, it needs to line up with the Bible and be edifying. You can see here, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So when you sing, you don't do it to impress people with your beautiful voice. You, you do it from a genuine spot in your heart. You mean what you're singing, and you do it. You sing music and sing songs that will be a help to the people that are listening. It should edify them. Uh, psalms, these are verses of Scripture put to music hymns. This is scriptural poetry put to music. Spiritual songs. All the other ones. <laughs> I, I think that's another way of just referring to anything that doesn't fall into the first two categories. But uh, especially these days, right? We're, I miss, oh, I miss so much our church singing together. But guys, get your hymn book. Turn music on. If you have CDs, if you, if you need to, go to YouTube. But make sure you have music in your life. It really does help. Verse 17, and whatsoever you do in word and in deed, or, or deed, I'm sorry, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Uh, you, this is a great verse that covers every area of life. Whatsoever you do in word or deed. Now, think of it this way. If I'm going to say it or do it, I should be able to say, I have been given authority from Jesus Christ to say this or do this. Right? I have been authorized. That is what we, that's what we mean when we say, I'm doing it in the name of the Lord. Jesus allows this. Can you honestly say that about everything you do? That Jesus allows it? Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Can you honestly with a clear conscience, thank God for what you're partaking of, whatever that thing is, word or deed. If you apply those two things, it'll become incredibly difficult to sin, right? There are some things that, that we do publicly. You wouldn't dare attach the name of Jesus to that. You couldn't go home and say, God, thank you for letting me do that. Whatever that is, that's what you need to avoid. That'll certainly help. Now, verse, starting in verse 18, we get Paul focusing on various groups that you would find just in life, in, in all of life, in all of society. But obviously, within any church, you're going to find these groups as well. So he's going to give them some particular advice. He says in verse 18, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as it is fit in the Lord. Uh, again, this is not a new thought. You I'm sure you've been introduced to this on other occasions and other sermons. You'll see it again in Ephesians 5. Submit yourselves. Wives, that's not your husband's job. Husbands, stop trying to force your wife into it. It's just going to make it worse. Ladies, this is your responsibility. Submit yourselves. Understand that God has 
set up this authority structure for the home and you obey that man as long as he is lining up with the Lord. If he asks you to do something wrong, something sinful, then obviously you need to obey God, not man. But he is the head of the home. You need to respect that because God established it. Uh, think about that, single, single ladies. Think about that before you marry somebody. Can I trust this man to make godly decisions so that when I go to submit myself to him, it's not going to be a pain, but rather a pleasure. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives. In Ephesians, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself for it. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Now, bitter, we can understand that a couple ways. Don't hang on to past mistakes, right? That's a lot, a lot of bitterness comes from that. Uh, we can also understand this as being harsh. Be not bitter against them. Don't be overly aggressive and harsh with them. And uh, I want to say overly critical of everything they do. This is a common struggle uh, for men. Uh, they, we struggle with short tempers. I think what happens for a lot of guys, and even myself, I've, I've fallen into this category at times. God help me. I'm, I, I, I don't want to ever go down that path again. But you know what happens is, is everybody else in our life, really gets under our skin. Boss, you know, people at work, standing in the queue at, at, at disc cam or whatever it is. And we can't yell at them. We can't. We'd lose our job or we would get arrested, right, if we, if we said what was really on our mind. So when we get home, we have all this pent-up frustration. Blah. We just, we know that our wife has promised that she'll be with us till death do us part, for better or for worse. And it's not as if we actively say, okay, well, I'm going to abuse that, but, but we do end up abusing that. So whatever the case is, whatever the source of the bitterness is, just as Christ is ready to forgive and ready, ready to minister to us, you husbands should be ready to minister to your wives. Even, you know, oh, but she's in a mood again. Okay, see what you can do to ease that, to make it better, rather than getting angry at it. But, all right, verse 20, children, obey your parents in all things. So what can children do for the Lord? Well, there are some, you know, smaller things that they can do in the ministry. They can deliver a cup of cold water to somebody. They, they can do other things. But this is the big one. Obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Now, why is this such a big deal? It sets the standard for the rest of their life. If children will learn to respect authority. If they will learn that if you do right, there's a reward. If you do wrong, there's a punishment. Mom and dad do a good job of administering a rebuke when it's necessary. They affirm good behavior. If they get these basic building blocks early in life, then as they grow up, it's going to make it so much easier for them to deal with other authority figures, teachers in school, bosses at work, if it's a lady, they're going to deal with their husbands, a, a pastor in a church. They're going to, the governments, they're going to know how to submit and how to obey. It really, really helps that children learn this lesson young. Verse 21, fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Uh, this is something I spoke about Saturday. So for those of you men that were part of the men's meeting, I, I talked about this I say concept, I, I used Ephesians 6 when I spoke of it. Um, 
Provoke not your children to anger. Don't pick on them. Don't be overly critical of your children. When you correct them, and you, you, and you need to, don't do it just to prove that you're bigger, stronger, and smarter. Do it in such a way that actually helps them learn. And it, it, make sure right, that you're not always just pointing out the bad, never the good. They're going to get discouraged otherwise and think, man, I never do anything right. You know what also discourages them? If they're ignored. This is what I talked about in part in the men's meeting. Be interested and be involved and be inspiring. Be interested and involved in their lives. A child left to himself, it brings his mother to shame, the Bible says in Proverbs. Verse 22, servants. Now, the word servants, yeah, slaves. In Paul's day, there were slaves. Now, guys, I, I don't have time to get into a long explanation of, of slavery, Bibli the biblical version thereof. Sl slavery, the way it's often thought of and used, especially with, you know, what we now know of slavery from the 1800s and how it was a horrible uh, institution of stealing people from their homes, selling them. on the, That's obviously wrong. But slavery in biblical times was often used to pay off a debt. Somebody would sell themselves into slavery to, to take care of a debt. So please don't jump to conclusions when you read verses in the Bible that sounds as if slavery is okay. Paul in 1 Timothy 1 said men stealers, he, he condemned men stealers. The idea of stealing people from their country of origin and selling them somewhere, that's obviously wrong and, and, and the Bible doesn't condone such behavior. But there's a lot of people, maybe some of you listening tonight, you've fallen into debt and you had to take extra job, you're a slave to your job because of debt. So you call it what you want, but uh, it, it, it applies. Now, you can think of this as a boss and employee relationship, or how, as Paul directly mentions it, a slave and a master. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart fearing God. So that employee, that slave, says, I'm going to do a good job, not, not only for my boss, but for the boss, capital B. God is watching. So I'm not going to do this job only when my earthly boss is watching so that I get the paycheck and don't. I want to do a good job because it's the right thing to do. That's what God expects of me. God provided this job. And therefore, I want to treat it as a gift from God. I want to take care of it. I want to do a good job. Verse 23, and whatsoever you do. Now, you can apply that to whatever you do in your like your career, but whatsoever you do, well, whatsoever is whatsoever. It can apply to anything in life. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Now that goes nicely with what he said in verse 22, not just for eye service as men pleasers. So whatever you do, do it heartily with all your heart and do it unto the Lord, not just to get applause and honor from men. Verse 24, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Watch the context. Talking to slaves, to servants, they can receive a reward at the judgment seat of Christ, which will be realized in the millennium. They will inherit a greater portion of the kingdom and be allowed to rule over ten cities, five cities, right? Luke 19, verse 
16 and 17 talks about that. This, this slave, because he was faithful at doing the job the way God told him to do it, he was faithful in that which is least. Then God can trust him in the, in the millennial kingdom. He says, you respected the authority. You have earned the right now to be in authority. Somebody says, yeah, man, you know, I'm stuck at work all the time and I just don't feel like I have a chance to do anything for God. God gave you that job. Work the job the way God told you to do it. Do it heartily as to the Lord, not just for men. You show up at the judgment seat of Christ, you might end up a lot better than a lot of pastors who maybe didn't take, I want to say, full advantage of the opportunities they had. Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Service brings rewards. Grace brings the gift of God, which is eternal life. Make sure you understand that distinction. Verse 25, But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. So, at the judgment seat of Christ, all these things get balanced out. If if somebody's messed up and lived wrong, they can lose rewards. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 3, 15. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. He is still going to receive a punishment, but he's not going to uh, be lost and damned to hell. He that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. So you can't get up there and say, God, but I was the boss, so a different standard applies to me. No, everybody, no matter what your station of life is, if you're the husband or the wife, if you're the boss, if you're the slave, if you're the child, it doesn't matter. Are you living the way God expects you to live in that situation you find yourself? All right, now chapter 4, we'll, when we get to that, we'll talk about the masters. Uh, if I would have divided this up, I would have put chapter 4, verse 1 at the end of chapter 3. It seems that it continues nicely from there, but that's... Perfectly fine. We'll pick that up next time. All right. I am, uh, I've realized that sometimes the chat section, often it fails. So I am going to restart the, the uh, app on my phone, and then I'm going to close in prayer. But by restarting it, it often brings up all the comments that I've missed. So if you have a question, now is the time to slip it in. I might be able to see it and answer it before I'm done. But if you want to contact me privately again, you're more than welcome to do that. So just one moment and uh, then I'll pray with you and we'll be done. All right. Okay, I don't see any questions, so I'm gonna pray with you and we'll be done. Father, thank you for this privilege tonight to go through these things. Help us, Lord. Help us to apply all of these spiritual truths, Lord, these spiritual realities. Might they become real in our lives so that what's inwardly happening becomes outwardly manifested. Thank you so much for your patience with us. Oh, God, thank you for not holding grudges, for not being harsh with us. Lord, help us to, whatever our status of life is, Christ is all and in all. You are our life. Help us, Lord, to conform to your image, to become more like you so that whatever we're doing in life, it turns out the way you would like it. 
I pray that you'd have your hand on each student now. And please bring us back together again soon. I reckon it would be Sunday. Lord, ready to hear more from you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys have a good night.